Welcome to episode two of Season of the Bitch, the only podcast with good politics and giggling. Today, uh, there's four of us, Ambria, Lindsay, Laura, Helen, and uh, we're also later on the program going to have two guests named Kathy and Max, Um, but first we're going to talk a little bit about our topic for the day, which is rural organizing, and first of all, I just kind of want to talk about what rural is. What is it? Who lives there? Uh, There's not really a static definition. It would usually be the countryside outside of both the city and the suburbs, According to the American Community Survey, rural areas cover 97% of U.S. land and host 20% of the population, about 60 million people. Um, But rural populations are continuing to decline. The Department of Agriculture's 2016 report on the rural U.S. says 18% of rural people live in poverty, compared to 15% of urban people, um, and that rural poverty is highest among racial and ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. Uh, 2010 census data reports that 22% of rural people are not white. There are also, of course, drastically less services to aid the poor in rural areas. Um, So, you know, rural areas are a big issue in leftist politics. Rural areas tend to vote Republican, um, but I think we should be careful to not conflate Republican and capitalist because, of course, the Democratic Party is also capitalist. Mm And... Yeah, I wonder if rural areas are less friendly to socialism in general. I think, you know, you could probably argue that they are. um, But you also have to wonder, have they always been that way? Is it a new thing? And I don't think we found really satisfying answers to these questions. Um, And that's something I want us um, to hopefully continue to talk about on future episodes. You know, if it hasn't always been this way, what has changed? Why has leftism gotten harder to pursue in rural areas? And... Really, what can we do about the ideological and physical divide, you know, between us and maybe capitalists in rural areas, but also between us and other leftists who are in rural areas? Totally. I think even among the left, you know, within the the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, there is definitely a contention between resources and funding that go into larger cities versus rural areas. So as socialists it's totally you know important for us to to have this conversation um there is a long history and connection between rural areas and leftism and part of this is because rural Mm -hmm. areas are often plagued with poverty and other frustrations with social structures or lack of social structures um which are often things that lead people to leftism yeah definitely definitely. kellen you want to tackle your historical anti-capitalist LOL. Yes, always. Um, (laughs) So one thing that I think is uh, really interesting about anti-capitalist organizing is that while there, you know, there are a lot of struggles that we have um, organizing in non-city areas, there's also a really rich history, as uh, Laura was suggesting, of rural organizing, anti-capitalist organizing. And I just wanted to preface our the upcoming conversation with talking about some of those histories um, because I think it gives us it should give us as leftists hope that um, there's definitely ways to do this uh, that the 
rural parts of the country. I'm, I I know more about the South specifically that, you know, the rural South isn't a lost cause. So there's a few different sort of points in history that I think would be really helpful to just think about briefly as, as we dive into this today. The first thing is during the, the Civil War and in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, there's a huge sort of opportunity for the country to go in a different direction. Um, that's something historians have talked a lot about with Reconstruction. And the first really revisionist or, or as we might think of it, sort of progressive book on Reconstruction was W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Black Reconstruction. And it's like so prescient in terms of the way that we think about Reconstruction now, but very different from how people in America used to think about Reconstruction, which was sort of, you know, the the lost cause mythology, the idea that like the South, it hadn't really been about slavery, like the North tried to impose, all of that kind of stuff. But W.E.B. Du Bois, not only did he try to sort of up uh, upend those conceptions of Reconstruction, he also talked about the slaves as laborers, which was a really new way of thinking. And he talked about how Wait, yeah. Callan, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. one second. Um, I know, just just a quick clarifying point. I know um, as a historian, you know a lot about these things, but Reconstruction, do you want to say what <laughs> what that is really quick? We don't yes. assume that people know yeah, yeah, what yeah. Reconstruction is. Yeah. I'm sorry, just so that everybody knows. No, that's okay. Yeah, so Reconstruction was the, the period after the Civil War where the South had lost and the Union sent in the army to literally like reconstruct the political systems of the South. And to the degree to which they were going to reconstruct the economic system was also very much up for debate. So you have, of course, the the slave South that had been very rural, very agricultural. Um, and while most white Southerners didn't own slaves, the vast majority of the production of commodities was was done by slaves um, and by uh, you know the quarter of white Southerners who owned slaves. Non slaveholding whites were mostly producing for their own families, like outside of this capitalist system, very self contained. And so after the Civil War is over, you have this massive question of, of how are we going to keep producing, right, if there's no more slavery. And there were some, like Thaddeus Stevens, whose picture I have on my wall and literally just fell almost on me as we were about to start recording. Uh, <laughs> Thaddeus Stevens made the argument that um, the former slaveholders should have their lands confiscated by the government and that those lands should be redistributed to the workers who had for so long been working those lands for no profit, you know, having their, their labor reappropriated in the most violent way. Um, and so Thaddeus Stevens is like kind of one of the OG uh, American socialists, I think is one way we can think of him, uh, a hero to a lot of people on the left and a radical Republican back when that was a good thing, you know. Um, so that's Reconstruction. Reconstruction is the period where we're, we're trying to sort these ideas out. And as you might guess, based on the trajectory of history that we're, maybe a lot of us are more familiar with, with the Jim Crow South, um, the South sort of won that battle. The North, uh, even though there was this sort of in the late 1860s, this like big period where lots of good things happened, like obviously the end of slavery, but also the 14th and 15th Amendments, which, um, you know, uh, allowed black people to vote for the first time um, and which uh, established equal protection under the law, um, those amendments were not enforced uh, by the turn of the 20th century. And 
So that's Reconstruction, and and it's a really important moment because you have people trying to force capitalism in the sense that we're familiar with it on the South. So there's a lot of people who are frustrated because like they're trying to reestablish plantations and have black people work them for profit again. And all of these freed slaves are much more interested in not having to deal with white people at all, not having to work for anybody and want to do the same kind of subsistence farming that non-slave holding white people or white people who had very few slaves had been doing. And when they're forced uh, either through local sort of paramilitary force, through the use of state violence, through predatory contracts, that sort of thing, to work for these large white landholders again, they start striking. Um, And there's a particular case that W.E.B. Du Bois talks about in South Carolina, but he sees it as a Marxist thinker as being this really important moment of labor solidarity in the South. And what's interesting is, is that you see this bubble pop up again later. So another like really important moment. And W.B. Du Bois is actually writing Black Reconstruction in the 1930s as the as in uh, Alabama and other places in the South, the Communist Party is becoming really popular, which sounds crazy probably to us in, in like modern day. You don't put Alabama and communism next to each other. But Uh, To plug another book, Robin Kelly has written this awesome book called Hammer and Ho, which is about the Communist Party in Alabama in the 1930s. And one of the things that 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 book talks about is that there are over a thousand members of the Communist Party, like actual members in Atlanta or Alabama uh, in the 1930s. There are more members of the Communist Party in Birmingham than in the of the NAACP in Birmingham. And like, oh, wow. these. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Out of, out of those thousand, out of those thousand members, more than ninety percent of them were black, and the vast majority were like sharecroppers. So you have part Damn. of why the Communist Party oh, was yeah. so popular was because they were involved in organizing sharecroppers unions. And another book that sort of goes into this is um, All God's Dangers, which is about this really amazing black man. Um, Ned Cobb, aka Nate Shaw, who is actually doing the organizing work, you know, ends up in prison for like twelve or fifteen years. It's it's wild, but they're they're going and listening to what the people there want and need. What they need is sharecroppers unions, and they're also doing the hard work that people like the NAACP were slow to do, defending black men who were accused of raping white women. You know, trying to prevent these false. Um, accusations from costing black men their lives as they so frequently did. And so the famous mm-hmm. Scottsboro Boys trial uh, was an example of that. And the the Communist Party was were the ones who were working to protect these black people who, um, you know, were being oppressed at every turn in a way that sort of the more bourgeois NAACP wasn't as willing to do for image reasons. Um, Boo. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, there's a lot of complicated reasons um, that have, you know, many things to do with World War II and the Cold War and, and lots of, you know, world events um, for why, you know, there, you know, the communist revolution didn't begin in Alabama. But I think that there's there's been a really powerful anti-capitalist um, vibe coming from the South, the rural South, not just in black communities, although as we, you know, as we know, uh, a lot of the civil civil rights heroes have been 
anti-capitalist, like most famously Martin Luther King at the end of his life was just a total socialist. Uh, the Cobbahee River Collective is another group of awesome black queer women who are very interested in these questions. And even though it, it may seem daunting right now, there's it's such fertile ground for for work. And it, it like leftism has happened and been done um, in the South before. And uh, I, I just think that like it can it can happen again. It, yes. it can happen again. Yes, absolutely. And in rural areas and in rural areas totally. in general. Um, yeah, and I definitely absolutely. I did some reading, like I found some statistics on and some facts about like the economic conditions of rural um, places and essentially why like a socialist movement is needed in those areas. Um, and of course, as Ambria mentioned at the top of the show, like poverty rates in rural areas are much higher, but also like the ability of people to get jobs is much lower. So apparently, and I found this stat, um, most of the stats that I found are from like a PBS NewsHour listicle. Most rural areas haven't even recruit, recouped the number of jobs that they lost in the recession in 2008. Mm. Um, so there are people who were unemployed back then and who are still unemployed now. Like, they have not been able to get work. Um, 20% of people who live in rural areas have an income, a family, like a household income of 1.5% of the poverty level, um, which Ugh. in 2015, when the statistic was was pulled, was um, like $23,895 for a couple every year and like 36375 for a family of four. Damn, <laughs> which seems crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and of course, you know, that rate is much higher in rural areas. And disability mm-hmm. rates, of course, are also higher in rural mm-hmm. areas, um, which might have something to do with like dangerous work conditions. Like if you work around heavy machinery, the odds of getting mm-hmm. injured by heavy machinery are higher. Or I know that like working in fields and in factories is kind of, you know, it's backbreaking. But also, uh, I read or I listened to this um, story on This American Life a few years back. I think that episode was Trends with Benefits. But it was talking about this particular town with an increased rate of people who are on disability. And it wasn't necessarily because they were, like, more physically disabled or mentally disabled than the rest of the population. It's just that they were physically or mentally or educationally unable to do the jobs that were available in the area in which they lived. Um, And so they were categorized as disabled and they were placed on disability. Um, So because the jobs require different physical and mental standards than jobs. Exactly. And because like the educational system in those areas wasn't good enough to train these people um, for jobs that actually require, you know, a high school diploma or, you know, they didn't have, um, or, you know, help these people get scholarships to college so that they can get an educational level for a desk job. So, of course, like, you know, all of that contributes to higher disability rates. And not to mention, like, transportation is a major thing. Like, we don't have good infrastructure. Like, if you can't afford a car and yep. your job, like, the only jobs available are miles and miles away, you're not going to be able to work or you're going to have to, like, get a ride from someone else. I mean, your options are really, really limited in in rural areas um, for kind of getting out of poverty. So, and before anybody asks, why don't you just leave? Yeah. uh, Where, like, where are you going to buy property or rent property? Totally. Just, 
God. Definitely. Anyway, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I think it's interesting. I liked that you brought up education because I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the South and I grew up in a rural area outside of Buffalo, New York, um, mm-hmm. and it's New York mm-hmm. State. So the education system, technically, I went to a public high school, has New York State standards. But still, in my high school, because it was in a more um, rural area, there the AP environmental, the advanced placement environmental class, the teacher didn't teach climate change and said that it wasn't real. Um, and oh our biology teachers <laughs> did not um, teach us evolution. Um, Jesus. And it, it's just interesting to me that, like, these, you know, I sometimes don't even, like, think of myself as someone from a rural area because New York State has a lot of different ways to access different things. But I felt very isolated as a kid being like, what is happening in this space and why is it, why do I feel like the only person that is thinking this is a red flag? I'm really impressed that you considered it a red flag because um, I think I mentioned to y'all before, I didn't believe in evolution until I was in college. Like, that's just the kind of educational background I had K through 12. You know, of course, I'm very creationist. I went to a high school for two years um, where they, I don't know, I don't even really, they kind of taught us climate change, but they also taught us, like, alternative theories. Mm. Yes, those, um, the, the, uh, the alternative theories. I want to hear one. Right? Can you tell us an alternative theory? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Global cooling, I think, was one of them. Ooh. I have no idea. It's just the um, earth with sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, tell us about yeah, your, like, super rural upbringing, too. Well, I, I don't even... It wasn't even super rural. Um, mm. I definitely grew up, like, middle class, um, very privileged. I was homeschooled for all but three and a half years, K through 12. So pretty much everything I learned, I learned at home. Um, Mm. but you know, my, my family was very conservative. I mentioned, you know, my mom was a big fan of Rush Limbaugh. Um, just so, so conservative. And so it wasn't really until I went to college that I kind of was, I don't want to say subjected to, but I was, I was exposed to, other people's worldviews and other people's experiences. Um, and for the first time in my life, they were experiences that were very different from mine. Of course, like at the time, right after I graduated from high school, I kind of, you know, found myself in an abusive relationship and mm. was struggling with like depression and anxiety diagnoses. And so mm. around the time that I was learning how to question or learning that I should question everything else that I'd been raised with, I was also kind of struggling with a lot of my own personal demons. Totally. Um, and so a big part of my, my story was just that, like, I was trying to regain my own, you know, dignity um, mm. and my own sense of humanity. Um, and so that's kind of when I found feminism. And, um, of course, from feminism, I found intersectionality. And from intersectionality, I learned to hate imperialism and uh, capitalism in general and economic injustice and all of its forms. And so Mm -hmm. each of these, you know, those steps kind of led to a deeper understanding um, of the struggles of other people and um, the recognition that the people who are struggling in ways that are different than I am are just as deserving as I am of their 
you know, recognition of their humanity and of their own dignity. So, I don't know. From that, I kind of concluded some pretty basic shit, I'd say. Like, if we have enough food to feed everyone, like, no one should go hungry. Uh, If we have enough houses to house everyone, no one should go homeless. If we have enough doctors Mm -hmm. and enough medicine to treat everyone for every illness, uh, there's no one who should die because of lack of health care. Preach. And, um... (laughs) And it took me such a long time to realize that this is socialism. It was actually my uh, <laughs> my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, who, um, and this is a different one than the abusive guy I was dating early in college, just FYI. I would hope so, um, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, he kind of told me, he's like, you know, there's a name for, like, that ideology. It's, it's socialism. He's like... No, socialism is like Fidel Castro. It's like North Korea. It's it's some it's some dictatorship, uh, some dictatorship type shit. Dictator shit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Isn't your husband like a tanky though? So he's like, is uh, is North Korea so bad? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, no. It's exactly what you said. Like the things that I already believed in were like the fundamental basis of socialism and it's just i don't know red red scare the propaganda that i had grown up with um that kind of kept me from realizing that i had been a socialist for a little while it's uh i don't know i think that i think in rural areas or in the south um just in areas that are generally conservative it's best to focus on like the principles and the praxis of socialism before you actually explicitly announce that it is socialism um yeah hit him with the praxis then tell him what your name is yes (laughs) (laughs) amazing Uh, yeah and um i think the question uh that kind of brings us into the question of you know we know that there's potential for organizing around leftism in rural areas but how do we do it and i think on the next episode we're going to talk more about online stuff our next episode is going to be about um being very online (laughs) and (laughs) how uh mass media is changing organizing i also found i found an article called um political structure in rural america which i didn't read because there's a paywall (laughs) (laughs) um but the abstract claims that uh rural and urban political differences are being projected um, to lessen in the future just because mass media and communications is making it so that, I don't know, there's information for people who want to go find it. You could look up things online. I mean, even when I was young, I, um, and it's still the case in a lot of rural areas, but, you know, I still had only sporadic access to the internet. And then things kind of changed when I moved to the city. Like I could go to the library and get on the internet if I couldn't do it at home, which is just one example of of the many ways that it's much easier um, to be poor in the city than it is to be poor in the country. But I think we're going to get a lot of really good suggestions from our guests that we're going to have on after the break. Yeah.
Have two guests with us today. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Kathy, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my name is Kathy Garcia. I am the co-chair of DSA Santa Fe, New Mexico. DSA is the Democratic Socialists of America, and I am the co-chair of the Santa Fe chapter uh, because DSA is a decentralized organization with chapters across the country. Welcome. Mm. All right, Max, how about you tell us about yourself? Uh, I am Max. I'm a trans woman. I am the uh, Lord Empress of our local chair of the DSA, Northeast <laughs> Georgia DSA. Mm-hmm. Max, I I want to know if you're a benevolent god of of the Northeast Georgia DSA. No, I'm actually a very terrible god. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's more of like not like Jesus in the Bible, like the whole socialist thing. It's it's more like you know Zeus mm. and uh, fucking with everyone. Hell yeah. <laughs> But it is kind of funny if you're okay with talking about it, about how I found Max, which is that I contacted, we have a rural working group in the DSA, and I contacted 
uh, them, and they sent out a call to all people in the working group, and uh, I was I was forwarded 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 um, so there are three people that we got the uh, email for this podcast, and um, the the one that was like that first saw it was a guy named Andrew. He saw it first and was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I don't know if I should uh, respond to this." You know, I was gonna I'm just a you know cis white guy, and so I was like, "You know what? We don't really have any trans women of color that I know of in our group. Like, we're we're still kind of new. We're a branch of uh, Metro Atlanta DSA, and so I was like, you know what? When it comes to oppression points, I think I, I think I win this one. So I'll, I'll take it from you." <laughs> And we're happy to have you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. How far do you have to go, Max, to get to your to get to the Metro Atlanta DSA? Four hours. Oh Oof. my gosh! And if you thought your DSA commitment was too much, <laughs> just think about that. <laughs> Did we want to start with some questions? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, let's start with the answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I figured we all had all of the answers and that we could just talk about those answers. No. Um, I only want rhetorical questions, please. Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, so, I mean, as you both know, this whole episode is about organizing in rural spaces. Both of you are in rural spaces. Can you just briefly talk about, each of you talk about your experience as a rural organizer and what that looks like for you. Kathy, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, so I have lived in Santa Fe now for two years. Um, I moved here from Los Angeles, which is where I got all of my experience in community organizing and union organizing. So I feel like for me, the very first year was just really paying attention to just the cultural and the societal dynamics of a place that I chose to move to. Mm. I was lucky enough to have a job that I think really allowed me to approach that in a very genuine and authentic way. So on that sense, I feel like I was very lucky. In the second year, I was still, I was, I was making like the adjustment to being in a new place, even though it was a place I was already familiar with because I did my undergraduate here a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> But it was, um, I think the thing that I've learned is that, so for example, Los Angeles is a, has a population of 2.8 million, and that's just in the city, not the county. And the entire population of the state of New Mexico is 2.1 million. Um, mm -hmm. And that really shifted a lot of things, the way that I saw dynamics play out. A food desert in the middle of a city feels really different than a food desert in the middle of the desert. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was um, it was really just about trying to really figure out like what what techniques did I already have for my organizing tool belt that would translate well to the new areas I was in, and what wouldn't or how how they could be adapted. Um, and I feel like that's currently where I'm at, is really trying to spend time figuring out what that looks like mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. um, and for the areas where we're working in, where we're servicing or um, however we want to describe what it is that we're trying to do in an area. Um, so, like, for example, um, one of the big things that DSA Santa Fe is involved in right now and trying to get more and more involved in it is a campaign around what's called the New Mexico Health Security Act. And so yes. it would give, 
Yeah, and so it would provide um, like a citizen panel and it would create essentially an insurance co-op for the state of New Mexico. Um, and so I feel like, okay, I've, I've worked on campaigns like this before as a canvasser or as an organizer, but yeah, the lay of the land is different. So that's how, what, like, I feel like what I'm really trying to figure out right now is um, w- how my past experience can inform uh, what we're trying to do now. Do y'all mind if I ask a follow-up question? Go for it. Go for it. Go ahead. Uh, Okay, cool. Kathy, I'm really interested in, you know, Los Angeles is such a different experience than the, the situation you're currently in. And I'm interested because there's been a lot of discord within leftist organizing in general about how it's really focused on larger cities or cities in general. And it seems like that kind of revolves around the myth that um, rural spaces aren't leftist or don't aren't hubs of leftism. Can you talk about your experience with that and what you've found to be the case? Um, well, what I have found here, and you know, to be very clear, this is the only r- rural-ish space that I've ever um, really lived in. I did spend like about eight months in a in Oklahoma one time uh, visiting family. So I, I certainly can't say like, oh, this is what all rural spaces are like. Obviously, they're all very different in their own totally. unique ways. But for for here, like Santa Fe as a city feels small, and but it does feel like a city. Santa Fe as a as like a metropolitan center, if I can even say it like that, because it's only like 80,000 people. But like as a center, like it's very progressive, um, has prided itself on its progressive values. And I think in that sense, it takes a lot of things for granted that maybe a lot of these areas are like this um, is kind of how I feel about it. Like I feel like it's given me like a skewed sense of uh, this is how progressive a city this small can be, then a lot of cities should be able to do that. The areas surrounding Santa Fe contradict this kind of progressive value that we Mm. supposedly um, Mm. are embodying or trying to promote. Um, It's a very um, segregated city, um, both Mm. by race and class. So in that sense, it's dealing with the hyper segregation we see in larger cities. And because all of the areas surrounding it are rural, they feel very poor. So it feels really bizarre to, let's say, drive a little further north to get to like such a luxurious building like the Santa Fe Opera and then just keep going further north. And it just now you're like in poverty. It feels very strange. It's I think like a sometimes it feels like a facade, these uh, progressive values that the city portends to have, but doesn't actually live or not really. And so I feel like that's the challenge that I have in this space um, or that any organizer would have in this space is how do you bring together this um, ideology of progressivism, but actually bring it into the praxis arena of actually doing something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, so I think like the challenge is that in, in these rural spaces, everyone's so much more scattered uh, right, it's less le- less dense by definition. So, being able to have the kinds of conversations you need in order to change that kind of landscape are just logistically more difficult. That's easy. I say easier to do in a city because it's so dense. Right, mm-hmm. you can go to a park 
um, a city park like even Al- the one on Alvarado. I'm already forgetting. I used to live right by it. Um, but like you can go to like any major park in Los Angeles and like, you know, there's a huge concentration of people all the time. And that just doesn't happen here. Right. So it, you can't just go out and like leaflet downtown at a subway. That That's just not the way this really works here. Um, yeah. So it's but I think the the underlying belief in leftism is there. I think a lot of rural spaces have a lot of history around um, workers co-ops and, um, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, kind of this agrarian culture of we're going to do it ourselves and we're going to rely on our neighbors. So I think it's a matter of drawing that out, building on that tradition, I think would be a really effective way to organize in rural spaces. That's still something I'm figuring out, though. Mm. Awesome. I also have a question for you. Um, in a previous conversation that we had with you, Kathy, you said that big city mentality is somewhat colonialist. And you talked about adjusting to organizing in rural spaces instead of urban spaces. Do you want to unpack the ways in which that is so and also maybe talk about how you came to realize that or sort of your the way your thinking progressed in that way? Yeah. Um, so I think a big thing for me is that I grew up in Los Angeles. That was my city. Um, so anywhere I went, I felt like it was mine, um, that I belonged to it even. Um, and here, because Santa Fe is the oldest established city in North America, and not even just of the United States, right? I yeah. mean, it's got a very rich tradition that predates even the, you know, the you know, the Declaration of Independence, for goodness sakes. So um, there's a really strong, I don't want to say nativism, because that that gives it a pejorative that I'm not really comfortable with. But there's this, um, there's definitely like an insider outsider perspective here. Like you're either a native Santa Fean or you're not. And if even if you've lived here for 30, 40, 50 years, if you're not from Santa Fe, then you're not a Santa Fean. Um, and I think that's beautiful. I think that's really awesome. And, you know, that strong cultural identity, but I was acutely aware of that, that I'm an outsider. Um, So Mm -hmm. I can't just come into a space and be like, oh, hey, I'm really experienced. And Mm -hmm. I think I'm really good at it. It, It's not it's not just that, right? It's like there's more skepticism. um, Yeah, but I think there's also there needs to be an understanding, like just because I come from like the big city, and I've got this experience, like that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be at effective at organizing in a space that I am totally unfamiliar with um Mm -hmm. that was why i spent so much time just like learning and listening and not being an activist so because you know you it has to be authentic people aren't gonna you know because otherwise it's just someone's knocking on a door and saying hey i'm canvassing for such and such a thing and vote this way it's like people are you can't just tell people what to do vote like this vote like that vote for this candidate vote yes or no on thing it has to be like, let's talk about why this candidate or this issue is really, really important to our community. Um, that's organizing. That's authentic and deep. So you have to understand what the community is going through in order to be able to do that effectively. So if I just came in and said, yeah, I'm going to run this campaign. And I'm going to do it like this because I have so much experience. Like I'm I'm missing a whole a whole piece of the puzzle. And I think that's what a lot of people have been doing, which is why it hasn't been effective. Mm. Um, I think it's not just like a big city mentality of, oh, I, I'm an expert and I know exactly what I'm doing and everyone should just learn coding or some shit like that. Like, <laughs> it's, like it needs to be like, well, what are the real issues that we're all facing, right? I, um, 
I was going to say, because again, when we had an earlier conversation um, with Kathy, something that really struck me is that this idea has been so successful or the sort of listening before we speak has been um, a really important aspect of organizing um, forever. And I was reminded hearing you talk about it of what Bob Moses, who is an organizer for SNCC in the 60s, called the um, bouncing ball uh, method of organizing, which was um, when he would go into the rural South for voting drives and that kind of thing, he would actually literally spend time walking down the street bouncing a ball because then kids would come out and like check him out maybe want to play with him and that's how he would meet their parents in a much more organic way than like you said knocking on a door and saying here's how you should vote or you know here's why you should register to vote in a you know a time and a place where it was very dangerous for black folks to do that but i i just i love that uh that's the approach that you're taking. And I, I think that it's really important for us on the left to do some listening. And I'm just so glad that you're here so we can listen to you today. today. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I also want to just kind of say something as an aside to Bob Moses. Um, I find him particularly inspirational because he eventually went on to develop the algebra project. Um, and I'm right. a, I, I was a math teacher for 10 years and reading the algebra awesome. project book um, when I was, student when I was like student teaching and in my teaching program he was essentially bringing that mentality to teaching right this like that's that's something that's also like real and I think maybe this is part of the history of being an educator is that as a radical educator I wasn't like oh here let me tell you how math is um Mm -hmm. (laughs) write this down and take this formula down and do it like this because that shit didn't work it never worked um and a lot of it was about listening to my students and really, like, really listening, like, what is your issue with the subject, like, um, or what is your mm. issue with school, like, why are you, like, cussing out this teacher, or why are you, like, getting into a fight with this other kid, like, really trying to understand the challenges that lay ahead of them in order to be able to really draw them to be successful, that a good teacher listens, um, a good, and Absolutely. so, like, you wind up being, like, a good leader because of that. Um, I don't think that it's accidental that my leadership skills came out because of the teaching, um, because of the union organizing uh, in Los Angeles with UTLA. I think that was a huge, huge part of that. And that was also what my mentors told me, like, listen, listen mm-hmm. to what your teachers are telling you, listen to what the students are doing, because that's how we're going to solve the like the root issues of what we were seeing with like problems in education problem uh problems in the neighborhood problems with the healthcare system you don't really know that unless you listen to the folks you're working alongside with so i think that's uh, i think bob moses in particular is i think really really fucking phenomenal it just props to him all around yeah i think it gets at this larger thing too of like breaking down the hierarchy or the facade of hierarchy Mm -hmm. and doing that not only in a teaching sense but again what you were saying about coming from a city like there's there's kind of this assumed hierarchy of city than rural and to to listen in both scenarios is to put that on its head, right? The teacher-student relationship doesn't need to be one way as like many educators know now. It's m- much more reciprocal and that makes for a much better experience teaching as well as learning. And it's just interesting because so much of what we deal with as socialists is 
changing the status quo of hierarchy or assumed hierarchy. And I love that this kind of comes out in all these different ways. Yeah, I think there's a funny thing about living in the city. You know, I moved to Chicago from a rural area. And when you live in a big city, it's just sort of, there's lots of people who come here from other places. And that's why I've really been thinking on um, what Kathy said about big city mentality being somewhat colonialist. It's you know, it does happen, but rarely do you have to justify being in Chicago and being active in Chicago. You know, if I move to Chicago mm-hmm. and I become active here, rarely am I ever questioned, like, what are you doing here and what are your motivations for being in Chicago? And, you know, you kind of hear it's it's often we make fun of the whole like, you're not from around here, are you? You know, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, Sheriff maybe we Ambria. should think about... <laughs> Maybe we should think about, yeah, Sheriff Ambria wants to know what you're doing here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Lindsay. I'm the sheriff of season of the bitch. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Sheriff Ambria, and I'm going to need to see your corn cob identification. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but, you know, maybe we should think about the ways and, you know, we make fun of sort of that attitude uh, that maybe is associated with the country. But, you know, maybe we can think about the ways in which that attitude is legitimate. And I think that we have a lot to learn, not only about organizing for going into rural spaces, but maybe there are things that are clear in rural, in rural organizing that we can use here in Chicago and other big cities as well. Like maybe we can learn from that for our organizing here in the city because, um, you know, I live in Bridgeport and I'm a white woman and one, one neighborhood over we have Pilsen, which has traditionally been a Mexican neighborhood, and it has its own issues and its own history. And if I'm going to go work, do work in Pilsen, um, it's going to be important to listen and to defer to people in Pilsen as an expert, as experts on their own experience. Snaps, snaps all around. Let's get Max in here. Can we? Can we do that? I think one thing that would be fitting to talk to you about is sort of your experiences being brought into uh, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, but also just into radicalism in general. So if you wanted to say anything about your experience with like how they reached out to you, because something we've sort of been talking about with rural areas is just lending a hand to people, showing up and doing the work that people need done. Um, and I think for you, that includes like getting to your meetings and getting to community events. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So me growing up, there was never like we have uh, in in Georgia. We have the Perry Fair, which is pretty uh, close to us. And you know, you'll you'll see a bunch of like RNC shit. Like you know, I remember growing up seeing all the No Obama stickers. And I was like, real pleasure. <laughs> you guys did a real good job on them. They would sell them, and they would fucking sell like hotcakes too. It was like, god damn. Uh, so you see <laughs> a lot of is like such a terrible pun too. It it's like really so, like, like you didn't okay yeah he starts with an O like it, <laughs> no okay yeah yeah congratulations yeah. Uh, so yeah you'll see a lot of like you know RNC stuff that will kind of come in and you know try and pick up the, the the white working class stuff like that but I do feel like there is kind of an absence of leftist organizing in my areas I like being straight up with you like. I wish the DSA had come into like these sort of areas or like to the fair or something like a lot long time ago. I've never seen them there. I don't think they've ever actually been there. So I think there does need to be more of a way for them to reach out, you know, like actually physically for people that, you know, probably aren't online all the time like me because Mm 
if it weren't for me just, you know, watching videos and stuff like that, then I wouldn't have been able to come to the DSA. Like, mm. And the only reason that I'm able to, uh, as, as you said before, like, you know, living so far away is I'm not physically able to, like, drive there because that is such a long way to drive. And also, I don't have a driver's license. But because our new branch is so small, it's kind of easy. And I'm the only one that's pretty much uh, what they call at large. It, mm-hmm. it was pretty much easy for them to get me a bus ticket to go to, like, the general meeting now i don't know i don't think this is gonna be like a regular thing but this is our first general meeting so it is something that they kind of need everyone to be there for hell yeah so our guy uh brad who started this chapter is is the one that's you know taking me out there and he's a real nice guy i love him to death for only the short time i've known him but yeah so there is you know things that people can do to actually help our at-large members even if, if there's not say a, a local chapter they have in a rural area because even though you have states like Georgia that are primarily rural, um, you're going to find most of the organizing and stuff. And this isn't like just because this is where everyone's at, but because it's easier to organize, like, you know, get like, you know, meetings set up at like civic places, uh, stuff like that. Like we had um, we had our uh, tear them down, uh, ra- not rally, but like a protest to mm-hmm. protest a Confederate monument called mm-hmm. Old Joe, I think like that, something like that. Um, after that, they went to a pizza shop that's <laughs> had them before because then they were like, oh, okay, they'll probably have us and they'll be okay with it because, you know, they've held Bernie rallies before. So they're, you know, they're, they're not grossed out by leftists. So. Ew. Okay. So, um, do you want to talk or do you feel comfortable talking about your experience as a trans woman in the South? You've talked a little bit about being in a conservative area and you've talked a little bit about being in a rural area and it seems like that would be a really challenging or you know difficult space to be in do you want to talk about your experience with that yeah uh so me personally um i don't really have to deal with with much because i'm not uh out fully like i mean when i say out fully like barely out at all the only people that even know I'm trans is, you know, immediate family, uh, mom, dad, and brother. My grandparents just think I'm gay, and they've never really brought it up. Because <laughs> uh, I think my mom told them that, because mm. trans equals being gay. So, uh, in, in my area, it would not be a really good thing at all. Mm. It would be really dangerous, because... There's a lot of, you know, gun-toting, don't tread on me, Confederate bullshit going on where I live. In a previous conversation, we had spoken about how you feel safer or have found solace within the DSA and within leftist spaces. Yeah, that that's part of the thing is that now while I don't feel comfortable, you know, being around where I am, being out and stuff, I, I do find solace in being around other leftists and stuff because I, I know I'll be safe with them and there won't be any uh, judging or whatever because, you know, usually... Majority of the time, actual leftists don't give a shit. They're very supportive oh. of trans people. Mm-hmm. So that was part mm-hmm. of the thing I was going to do was after the general meeting was I was going to try and, you know, like try my best to pass. I was going to like put a wig on, like makeup, stuff like that. I'm not yes. really that girlish. So just, you know, moderate stuff. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was something I was going to do. And I feel like that would be a, a real big help. And, you know, just even having, you know, people use the right pronouns, uh, the name Max and stuff like that, that would be really good for me. And I feel like it would be really good for a lot of other, you know, like trans or non-binary leftists is just being around people that they can be themselves with, especially because, you know, in Georgia, you know, in Atlanta, there, I don't want to say there is no problems, but you're, because it is a city and it is going to be more left-leaning that you're not gonna have as much trouble as just being in a rural area 
especially in Georgia, there are a lot of people, trans people that have been killed, especially trans people of color. There was a case not too long ago of a uh, trans youth being murdered. So that isn't really, and that was in Atlanta. So it's not really, you know, something that you know, makes people feel confident, you know, to be themselves. Mm. So, yeah, I, I do feel like that that's part of the, the greatest reason why uh, you, know, you can be involved with leftist organizing uh, is because you will get to be yourself and you'll be surrounded by people that do care about you and care about the problems that you face, especially as like with your identity and stuff like that. So if to, you know, tell people who are involved in the DSA or a similar organization ways that they or we could do better, do a better job reaching people who are marginalized, particularly marginalized people who are sort of far-flung outside the cities, what kind of outreach work would, like, your ideal DSA be doing? Well, if there's, you know, not, like, if there's no, like, actual physical locations that they could go to, you know, reach out, like, because there are plenty of, in Atlanta, you know, they have trans uh, or, you know, just LGBT in general uh, outreach groups, like, there are even... Uh, homeless shelters really for LGBT people. I feel like they could do organizing there, you know, handing out water and stuff like that. Like, maybe we'll know, hey, you have another safe space that you could go to. I feel like that would be a really uh, good thing they could do. But if they if they are not able to do that, if there is no thing like that around them. Um, I feel like just going on the trans message boards, stuff like that, like looking for, uh, you know, trans people that are going through a rough time would be good. Um, I know there's a couple trans, you know, forum websites like Susan's Place or Susan's, pa- Susan's Palace. I don't really go on it much anymore, but those are places that you could go to or even just looking at uh, LGBT advocacy groups on Twitter because Twitter is like one of the greatest uh, outreach <laughs> programs that we have, mm. I know from personal mm. experience. So I feel like that's another thing you could do. Uh, Discord groups, hell, even Reddit. You know, you'll find people, maybe trans people trying to find other trans people in their area to help them. And if you have a trans person in your organization that could reach out to those people and it's like, hey, look, uh, I'm with this group. And, you know, it's a really good thing to be a part of because you will get to be yourself around these people. You will get to, you know, express yourself the way you want, especially uh, if you don't have, you know, like programs to help you. Um, Just even if it's something like, you know... if, even if there is like you know a cis woman or something or some guy that or some person that's just you know like good on makeup if you're a trans woman for instance you could they could do your makeup stuff you know make you feel better just you know small things like that for when they do come into the uh, organization but i just feel like trying to find you know trans people or lgbt people gay people groups online because there are plenty of you know groups for people like that Hell, go on Xbox, find one of the many uh, trans gay gamer <laughs> uh, stuff on there and just reach out and be like, hey guys, I also play Bioshock Infinite and would really like to talk to you about, you know, being yourself and not getting beat the shit out of on the streets. That'd be really cool, wouldn't it? So <laughs> yeah. I feel like that there's there's plenty of ways that they could reach out to people like that. Just It's just a matter of, you know, looking for it. Wow, thank you. Yeah, I did not know about uh, the Xbox Live trans and gay community. I have to say, it's something that never occurred to me. Kathy, uh, we know you're from the Southwest, um, and not to bring up a bullshit-filled old white dude, but Mm. can you describe what it's like um, when someone like Joe Arpaio creates fucking concentration camps for undocumented folks? I know you're not in Arizona, but... Just if you could talk about the nature of organizing with large populations of undocumented comrades. So 
I think like this is something that I'm really excited about as far as like the DSA and getting to know all of the Southwest chapters, the border state chapters, like the Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas chapters um, in particular, because Joe Arpaio, right? Like he's a very prominent piece of shit, but he's, he's just one prominent piece of shit. And so Seeing, like, getting the news that he was being pardoned was infuriating, to say the least. And I think, I think, I mean, just whenever something like that happens, um, where we see this, like, brazen disregard for um, equity and justice, it makes vulnerable communities feel more vulnerable. Mm. And it makes them... I think it's, I mean, we're seeing a lot of this. It's just a lot of folks are scared to go to work. They're scared to drop off their kids at school. Um, They're scared to just do the normal things that um, would allow them to provide for their families. Um, So that makes the work that we're doing so much more high stakes, uh, regardless of what it is, right? Absolutely. Or even where it's happening, right? Because now what we're... I'm sure what we're going to see is that as folks start to in border state chapters in Arizona in particular, I'm sure um, folks are going to leave that area if they feel really threatened by it. Right. Um, So I think seeing chapters come up with really innovative ways to support the community. um, I'm thinking in particular of New Orleans DSA and their effort to change brake lights in their community. Uh, As they recognize, you know, yeah, as they recognize that, you know, police will use any kind of pretext to pull you over. um, I think that's, in that sense, like very inspirational, right? Like, how do we take really ordinary things and really kick it up to this next level like New Orleans DSA just did? Um, How do you really show up and say that you're in support of these communities, like fundamentally? Uh, Like another thing that's DSA Santa Fe has just recently started doing is we've um, we've come out to support a group of people here um, in Santa Fe who feed day laborers every single morning, every day of the year. I think it's important that like as an organizer, you say, I'm not here just when I need your help winning an election or when I need your help. Like you can't just create an event and hope people show up at your event, right? It has to be something that's actually in service to folks, that it's your organization showing up for the community. I think that's challenging um, because it requires folks to get out of their comfort zone um, and do things that maybe they've never done before. It's been easy to buy a bumper sticker that says coexist. That's easy. But getting up at like 730 in the morning to go feed someone when there's like when it's cold outside, like, no, now I have to actually do something. And I think forming that sense of community within your chapter in order to be able to form a greater sense of community with where you live, I think is really, really crucial. Otherwise, you know, the Joe Arpaios are going to win because it'll be this predominant feeling of fear instead of this predominant feeling of support. Um, that the city is really out there. Um, Santa Fe is a sanctuary city. I think it's really important that it's not just a sanctuary city on paper because the mayor signed something, that it actually means something to the values of um, the city that we actually want to live in um, and what that looks like. So, yeah, fuck Joe Arpaio. (laughs) Fuck Joe Arpaio. I hope... 
that he walks around every single day in constant fear. I want him to know what that's like. I want him to be shouted down every single place that he goes. I want people to spit on him. I would spit on him. You heard it here first. Spit on him. <laughs> yes. Do we all want to do on a count of three a really loud fuck Joe or <laughs> yes. Arpeo? Yeah, wait, one, one two, three, two. and then? Or on, at, on <laughs> three. Fuck Joe Arpeo. Okay. And one more note before we wrap up. Um, Kathy, I also, you had mentioned before a, a good, uh, what I thought was a really good idea uh, about um, having sister chapters. Do you want to just. Uh, yeah. So um, I had met some folks from the New York. Uh, Bronx Upper Manhattan branch um, at the DSA convention um, and in conversation, yeah, the bum branch. Uh, and um, that's because uh, my co-delegate went to college with one of those dudes. So they knew each other. So by kind of default, we all just kind of hung out. But um, at some point, at some point in, in one of these after convention hours hangouts, someone said something like, oh, we should have sister cities. And just as folks in the room, and there were a lot of folks in that room, just kind of started talking about it, about what that would look like and what that would mean. Um, it just started to, you know, it just seemed like a great idea. And it really came out of one of the resolutions that did not pass at the DSA convention um, about this, like, percentage of dues sent back to chapters. Um, and some rural chapters had raised some very valid concerns about about the due sharing. Um, and so the conversation we were having that night really came out of, you know, how do we address this issue? Um, and basically the idea was, is that if you are like a large city or a large ish city, um, where you're able to throw frequent fundraisers and you really have that ability to really kind of leverage those resources that, just pick a pick a rural chapter um reach out to someone i mean we're now in these working groups um we have um facebook communication capabilities that just like max was saying a little bit earlier the internet has really made this kind of communication uh possible um so it's easy to just reach out and say hey we're looking for a small chapter that has less than 50 members um and we want to send you this chunk of money that we raised at our last happy hour or something, right? Like it doesn't have to be anything major. It could just be something that simple. Um, and then ultimately going beyond the financial help, which obviously is important, but folks in larger cities also have a, a knowledge base, right? So they could talk to the chapter that they're quote unquote sponsoring and say like, well, what, what do you folks need help with? We can help you design flyers. We can help you do a thing. Maybe someone lives, is originally from that area and is going to go back and visit their, you know, visit their family over, you know, a holiday break so they can go to that chapter and discuss tactics and organizing strategies. Um, how do you swap that knowledge back and forth um, and really create like a pipeline? Um, especially in areas where we are seeing a bunch of young activists like Max come come up, right? Like you have this enthusiasm. How do you really take a chapter and mentor them, help them come up? I think that's really, really crucial. And I think that's also coming from a background of teaching where you have to um, help 
that next group come up. Um, a thing that me and my co-chair always say in DSA Santa Fe is, man, we can't wait till we are not the chairs anymore, that we're able to pass it off to someone else, um, someone younger than us, someone who has like way more time and energy than us, but also has like great new ideas. Um, so how do you um, how do you institutionalize that within a decentralized organization? I think that's something that the chapters themselves can figure out. I think that's it. I think that's an awesome, that that would be a really great thing to pursue. Um, so we're going to say goodbye. This is an amazing first guest group. Thank you so much Thank for you being guys. on the show, yeah. Kathy and Max. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Y'all have Talk fun. Bye. 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 So if you listened to our first episode, uh, you may have heard that I captured a bat and it was really exciting to me. Um, If you didn't listen to the first episode, go do it now. Um, But I wanted to... She captured a bat, you guys. (laughs) I wanted to share with y'all that literally today, like an hour before we started recording... Um, I was walking to my house and a bee flew into my mouth and stung the back of my throat and I was like coughing everywhere and I thought I was going to die and I was like, what the fuck? And then, of course, my immediate reaction was, oh, I need to tell the coven about this. And (laughs) you are on the ground, like clutching your throat, like my podcast. Before I take Benadryl, before I do anything, I have to let them know that this is happening right now. So it seemed important because it was uh, it was definitely a part of this episode in in so many ways. Bees are fascists. today's weird it's like kind of we kind of have a serious tone today i think we'll be more serious or uh less serious again on the next episode because like we had some technical difficulties but then also like i lost my glasses overnight okay and i for one thing i'm i have very bad vision i get up in the morning my glasses are next to my bed i put them on immediately Mm. i wear them the entire day take them off at night when i go to sleep and put them next to the bed in case somebody tries to attack me and I need to be able to see what's happening. <laughs> and I, you know, I did have a drink and do some karaoke last night, but it wasn't extravagant by any means. And I came home and went to bed and I woke up this morning and I could not find my glasses oh my anywhere. I'm a pretty tidy person, you know, I'm not, I, my house isn't very chaotic. I, um, I had to, I spent like, 15 minutes looking for them and I had to go put in my contacts because I was like I can't spend any more of my time on this <laughs> today uh and then I, I still have not found them and then right before we started recording recording I also power broke a glass of water <laughs> <laughs> it was a hard I just like I slammed it off of the table and it exploded everywhere you've got ghosts yeah there's no no other explanation. You're saying when I when I power broke the glass, it was somehow a ghost's fault. Is that what you're? Yeah, it uh, it guided your hands and stole your glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the moral of the story is: through adversity, we rise. <laughs>
uh we're we're working hard to bring you guys this podcast uh <laughs> despite everything we've been through today um only half kidding but really glad y'all are listening and uh we're looking forward to seeing you guys or, or chatting with you guys next week we're going to be talking again about being extremely online and i'm sure none of our listeners have any idea what that's like uh, but for now, if you want to get in contact with us, remember we are at season of the B, no spaces, no underscores, at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash season of the B. Give us a shout out if you have ideas. Uh, we'd love to hear them, especially love to get some music. Um, we'd love to feature it on our show. So uh, I think that that about wraps it up. Um, Thanks for listening, y'all. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Love you guys. Bye. 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 Bye.